Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Scott, did you see the tweet that one of our listeners posted about how he cannot tell our voices apart but it's fine because quint is the real star of the show anyway <laughs> yes exactly. i missed this tweet but thank you to this listener who is clearly I tweeted that for my alt account <laughs> <laughs> that's how you made it on to this episode as a guest tyler well, now, there are, the now there are three generic dudes whose voices no one can tell apart Ty- tyler runs my sock puppet fan army we've been working together on this to clarify, we're all going to do a pretty poor barbershop quartet on the way out of this, just so you can t- <laughs> hear our voices at different notes. Confirm there are Aww. four of us in perfect harmony. <laughs> I also completely failed to send out the Twitter thread last week, which I feel terrible oh, about. I wrote did. the whole thing out, and the browser collapsed. Did it collapse under the weight of your tabs? It did, basically. <laughs> oh, the weight of my gifts, trying to animate everyone's object lessons. I am loving Spicy Tyler. Um, this is the spicy tyler edition i do what i want (laughs) Uh, tyler's crossed that two-month mark and he has opinions now this is this is dangerous i I actually like the spicy tyler edition (laughs) oh yeah i'll do spicy tyler (laughs) i think that's better than i think that's yeah i think you've survived your first couple of months at lawfare that's it you're you're you're, we're never getting rid of you (laughs) you're tenured now game on Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to have with us our spiciest of editorial crew members, our managing editor here at Lawfare, Tyler McBrien. Tyler, welcome. Thank you for joining us yet again here on Rational Security. It's a pleasure to be back. I thought I was sufficiently bad enough last time where I was I would be blacklisted, but um, I guess you're gluttons for punishment. <laughs> now harder. you know you can get away with anything. Yeah, but you came back with a really hostile attitude, which we like, as, as demonstrated hopefully on the B-roll. We like this new spicy, angry, angry Tyler that we're bringing out in this, this sort of thing. I think whatever happened on this holiday uh, weekend really got to your head, but we're excited to have you back with a, a new sort of energy. No matter what I do, you, you still like it, so I, I'm just going to be myself. Perfect. That's all we ask. That's all we can ask. Well, we are happy to have you back here for what we are calling, in your honor, the Spicy Tyler edition, because we have had a number of notable stories break out in the national security space that we want to hash over with you and with the listeners. First up, our first topic for today, bad, glad, sad, grab, has Leningrad, a tad mad. Russian president, that was the first try, ladies and gentlemen, no (laughs) editing. Please keep that in, Jen. I'm pretty proud of it. Did I practice here before I recorded? Yes, I did (laughs) a couple of times, but still very proud of myself. Russian President Vladimir Putin seems intent on escalating the conflict in Ukraine as he's mobilized thousands of civilian conscripts and is on the verge of incorporating separatist parts of Ukraine into Russia following a sham referendum. What does this mean for the future of the conflict? Topic two, 
What's Farsi for Riot Girl? Young Iranians have taken to the streets for women's rights following the apparent killing of 22-year-old Masa Amini after she was arrested by religious police for failing to adequately cover her hair. Could this be a real threat to the Iranian regime, and what will it mean for hardline President Raisi and the ailing Ayatollah Khamenei? And topic three, canon as anti-canon. A little hat tip to all of our constitutional law professor listeners and friends out there. Everyone's favorite federal district court judge, Eileen Cannon, has had the part of her order requiring that a special master review even classified records seized from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate slapped down by the 11th Circuit. Where is the case and the broader investigation likely to go from here? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So uh, the last time that we talked about Ukraine on this podcast, it was a it was off of some really impressive recent uh, successes that the Ukrainian army had uh, achieved, liberating a big swath of territory in the east and pretty aggressively driving down to the south, where they they continue to fight uh, the the Russians for recapture of southern Ukrainian territory. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Vladimir Putin has responded, uh, not backing down, if anything, ratcheting up uh, by quite a few points. So last week, he gave a speech on Russian television in which, most importantly for our purposes, he announced a partial mobilization of Russia, which involves calling up, the government says, about 300,000 reservists, though the eventual number of draftees might be much higher. And in response, many Russians, especially those who live in major cities and have the economic means to buy one-way tickets out, to the few countries that still allow Russians to visit without any visas, uh, they've increasingly fled the country to avoid uh, compulsory service. While draft stations across the country, especially in some of the poorer outlying regions where a lot of the, to be frank, cannon fodder that the Russians are planning on sending to the front comes from, uh, they've actually begun to violently attack uh, these recruitment stations. These attacks have been driven largely by desperate men who really want to avoid going to the, the trenches in Ukraine. I mean, in addition, in that speech, Putin not so subtly threatened to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine or its Western backers went further uh, and especially attacked Russia. And to that end, this makes particularly notable Russia's decision to organize a bunch of quote-unquote referendums, which everyone recognizes will be total shams, uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine along the lines that they did in uh, Crimea. The referendums are about whether the Ukrainians want to join Russia, which obviously is going to be a pretext for Russian annexation. And some early results, though, again, cannot emphasize enough that these results are completely made up. Early results being reported by Russian government uh, suggest that upwards of 97% of Ukrainians in these eastern regions uh, have voted to join Russia. Again, obviously, totally made up numbers. Um, so Tyler, let me let me start with you. What have the events of the last week signaled about Russia's, and most importantly, the only opinion that really matters in Russia right now, Vladimir Putin's intentions for uh, the next phase of the war in Ukraine? Well, I think I will start off with a not-so-spicy take in that it looks like things are quite bad for Putin and getting worse. Um, as one of the co-hosts, Scott, said earlier, it looks like that Putin is, is really tying himself to the mast one, I think, signifier of, of the desperation here is the geographic spread of some of this unrest. I believe the, the, the shooting in the recruitment office was uh, in the region of Siberia, which is far from you know the urban centers that tend to be more progressive, ones that you would expect to have more anti-war um, sentiment. Uh, this seems to be pretty, pretty diffuse throughout the country. So I think this is, this is a pretty, pretty bad signal for Putin. 
I think to ratchet up the spiciness here, one thing that has struck me or, or I think confused me a bit um, is the actions by some of Russia's neighbors in in not really offering a pressure valve or an outlet for what I think many could consider Russian asylum seekers. You know, men, mostly men who are who are fleeing, who, who don't want to be mobilized. A lot of uh, the Baltic states and Poland in particular are, are shutting their borders to, you know, men who otherwise would be would be fleeing. I think interestingly... Statements from uh, Lithuania's foreign minister, for example, was inter- was interesting, and he seemed to say that, you know, their line is that they want Russians to stay and fight the regime from the inside, which seems like a, a difficult ask to someone who just kind of wants to, to to save their life. But, um, you know, that's that's been one thing I've been watching of the, of the, you know, what are what are Russian men to do who don't want to fight, but then you know have their options limited. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, there are stories, as as we've mentioned, of uh, at least one recruiter was shot, um, which is also, it's worth noting, particularly striking because there are not a lot of guns in Russia. It's, it is not a society that is heavily armed, particularly. Um, so that jumped out at me. Um, but there are also, there are fires set at recruiting stations. Um, there are lots of reports of people essentially trying to get out into Central Asia or Georgia, other, you know, bordering countries that allow Russians to stay for a length of time. And the, you know, the length, the wait time at the border has gone from, you know, typical wait of 30 minutes to waiting like 12 hours, you know, tickets out of the country are thousands and thousands of thousands of dollars. There's some really brutal footage that you can watch online of basically groups of people, uh, many of them women whom I assume are, you know, the mothers of sons who are being drafted, just screaming at uh, members of the police and the military, including one woman who I don't speak Russian, but I understand from the translation was screaming, um, our children are not fertilizer. Just, it seems like just a really desperate situation. I completely agree with Tyler that the, the move by many European countries, including the Baltics, to kind of forbid young male Russians from entering the country just seems totally backwards and in many different ways. Among one of them is just that, you know, the more young Russian men aren't in the country, the more people can't be drafted to fight for the army. So that seems like kind of a an unambiguous win. I mean, it's also true that, you know, I think it's it's very easy to say from the outside, well, these people should stay in Russia and, you know, help overthrow the government. But I think that argument, first off, it's it's asking, you're essentially asking someone to sign themselves up for 10 years in prison um, at a minimum, um, which I think is not a reasonable thing to request that somebody do. And it's it, in part because of that, it's just a request that is not really in conversation with what the reality looks like on the ground in terms of what the situation is for dissidents in Russia right now. I mean, we saw enormous protests when the war began, those ebbed because people kept being carted into prison for, you know, potentially decades. Um, we've all seen the pictures of Navalny, who looks like a, a skeleton. So the situation, I think, is is pretty dire. I mean, I do wonder if we've talked a lot about the extent to which Putin seems kind of divorced from reality, frankly, when it's come to the his conduct regarding the war, I do wonder whether he and the Kremlin understood the extent to which people in Russia were going to be angry about this order. But again, because of that same repression, it's kind of hard for me to 
figure out how much that matters, if at all, for the domestic political situation, much less the war itself. So I don't have many doubts that at this point, Vladimir Putin knew how hard a sell this was going to be domestically. And I actually think that's part of the strategic equation that goes into this, because I think this is really Putin really trying to draw a line in the sand and signal a lot of commitment, kind of like I said, binding to the, the mast, as, as Tyler mentioned earlier, to show commitment to the West and to Ukraine that he's serious about making at least some gains, in this case, it appears to be these eastern provinces that are now the focus of the Ukraine conflict, right? We see Putin saying, I am going to take the major domestic hit and I'm willing to do it. I'm not worried about it by conscripting a huge number of people, you know, up to 300,000 people. Who knows exactly where it's going to come out? Uh, They may get more from that later. But he's got parliament on board in Russia to actually initiate measures to do that. Um, Then you say, oh, and by the way, on the ground, I'm going to annex these separatist territories, make them part of Russia. That changes the whole dynamic of the conflict on the ground. Remember, the red line has always been the United States and the West will not support Ukrainian operations in Russian territory. Now, all of a sudden, the line of what is Russian territory has moved. Now, the Biden administration, to its credit, has already said, we're not going to accept the results of this referendum. This does not change the zone in which you can actually use these weapons. But it gives Putin a measure by which he can cast in, in a more escalatory light actions that Ukrainians or Westerners might take in those territories is saying, well, now we're talking about the self-defense of Russia. There's all this international law game. It's very interesting. would make a very good article. We'll make a very good article one day uh, that Putin is, is playing using recognition and territorial boundaries to build these different kind of justifications for and ways to frame escalatory and aggressive actions he's undertaken. Scott, Scott can, I, can I ask you a question about that? So I get what Putin is trying to do. I, I think it's pretty transparent what Putin is trying to do. But this is so flagrantly illegal like this, I mean, it's not just, it's it's both flagrantly illegal and also unlike in Crimea, which again, I no way support the annexation of Crimea. That was also totally illegal. But like you could maybe draw some like historical story and there may have even been some local support. Like this is just total, total bullshit. And everyone knows that. Does this really meaningfully move the red lines, right? I mean, for a red line to be an actual line, People have to actually believe it. And and to me, this is so obviously fake that, of course, Putin can call this a red line, but it, it to me doesn't meaningfully shift anything. Like if Putin wants to use nuclear weapons, he can just use nuclear weapons. He doesn't need any sort of fig leaf to do so. At any moment, he can say that this is a war of existential aggression against Russia and its Slavic peoples, blah, blah, blah and use tactical nuclear weapons on that basis. It doesn't seem to me that this red line changes anything because everyone, in particular those in the West, in particular those in Europe, who will ultimately decide whether they want to be willing to be cold for a long time and, and therefore continue to support the Ukrainians, they're the ones that have to decide this. So I, I guess I just I don't see that this functioning even plausibly like a red line because it's just so fake. What, what am I missing about that? So what you have to bear in mind is that, A, everything Putin's done thus far has been wildly illegal, and that hasn't stopped him from playing these sorts of games. And these, you know, pseudo-legal lines, because they're often not strictly legal or they hinge on different interpretations of applicable law, still play a role in both parties signaling and communicating to each other, well, here's certain lines, how far we're going to go. And here past this is a realm where escalation becomes a greater possibility. It's this very challenging signaling game that, frankly, the Biden administration and the Putin regime primarily, as well as the Ukrainians, 
have been involved in, but really the Biden administration and Putin have been the biggest communicators here because a lot of it is about U.S. assistance, right? The Ukrainians have not been this restrained in what they're willing to do, but they're not the ones the Russians are really worried about. And they're not worried about escalating with Russia because it's hard to imagine a more escalated conflict really for, for the Ukrainians. For the United States, the United States has always taken the position, look, you cross a NATO country borderline, that is war. And the United States will go to war for that. Uh, they haven't quite said it quite like that, but that's what they mean. It's not that clear. Are there international justifications or reasons that Putin could say for doing certain things across the border in NATO countries? Yeah. I mean, it's not a strictly legal line. It's a policy line, although it's also informed by principles of self-defense about this idea about, well, when does assisting somebody actually warrant hostile action in the post-UN era? A bunch of other international law factors enter in. And this goes to that same equation. I agree. It's not nearly as persuasive. And I think it's pretty easy for the Biden administration and Western allies to say, this doesn't change our calculus. But when it gets down to it six months from now, or a year from now, about saying, well, how committed are we to giving full-fledged resources to this eastern part of the country that, frankly, at least parts of which had been written off by a lot of these countries for several years prior to the outbreak of this conflict? And Putin is going even further and saying, and by the way, really moving on this area militarily presents a much higher escalation risk, which is what this move signals in my mind more than anything else, long-term commitment to holding it and willingness to escalate over that, then it, I think it inevitably does change the calculus. And I don't know if it, it changes the outcome. Um, I suspect it doesn't, at least in the near term, but I do think it's an effort to shift that calculus. And I think that plays into a lot of this here too. Uh, it is trying to make clear to the Europeans, to the Western allies, this is going to be a long, difficult conflict and I'm not going to back down. I could eat the cost of domestic pressure. I can, am willing to do draconian things to my own people to get the people I need to throw out this conflict. And I'm willing to, as appears to have happened recently, even potentially sabotage the Nord Stream pipeline, telling the Europeans, hey, there's no going back now, guys. I cut off oil to you and now I've cut off oil permanently. So you enjoy this coming winter and know the governments that brought it to you have no other recourse for solving this by coming back to Russia. So they've, they've really got to suffer through it. it you know, it's, it's, it is an escalation tool. He doesn't have many other places to go except to double down and say, I am the brutal man you always took me to be and I'm willing to go to the mat to accomplish this objective. Are there reasons to think parts of that are credible, parts of it aren't? That definitely seems to be the biggest impetus behind a lot of these different efforts, in my view. I also think, Alan, to get back to your question, one aspect of this we haven't hit is is Putin's message and what he's signaling domestically. Um, I think we look in, in the Western media pretty much across the board. It's a sham. This is illegal. There's not even a conversation. But Putin needs at least a fig leaf or some veneer of a legal framework that he can seed for propaganda at home. And that's that's also what I suspect is happening here. That that can become party line at home and, and at least there's something to say to sell to the domestic audience. So I, I guess then the next question then is how does this change the end game? Right? So the immediate question is how does Europe handle getting through this winter? Right? If if getting through this winter and paying sky high energy prices does not break European Europe's in particular Western Europe's commitment to Ukraine then it seems like Ukraine has a lot of wind at its back and it will continue to try to reclaim these eastern regions. However, if Putin has now annexed these regions, it seems to be impossible for him to back down. And in the absence of the complete collapse of the Russian government, which is possible, right? These things look really stable until they're suddenly really unstable. Then he has his red line. It's likely, right? Um, you know, Mo, I was I was listening to a, a podcast. I, I, now I'm embarrassed to say I forgot which one, in which the uh, the the guest pointed out that 
most autocrats die in office, which is an interesting point, die from natural causes in office. Um, right. So if we can, we can assume, you know, Putin is still a healthy 70 year old, right. We can assume he's gonna be around for a while, in which case, you know, for him, a red line clearly will be retaining these, these territories. So are we then looking at a kind of dirty compromise in which we bribe the Ukrainians with EU membership, junior NATO status, a ton of money to rebuild their economy, which is um, actually in much worse shape than most people realize. Uh, and in the process, they cede these Eastern Russian speaking parts of the country. I mean, to, to, to me, that, that now seems like the most likely outcome, which is not great for anybody. But I, I'm, I'm curious what, what you all think about that. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me like, you know, it's Putin is digging in and digging in and digging in. And I, you know, you keep thinking that he's dug in as far as he can, and then he magically figures out a way to keep digging. I mean, to, to mix metaphors somewhat, right, like, you can describe what he did in terms of the mobilization as burning the ships Cortez style. But one thing that happens when you burn the ships is, is that you don't have any way back. And maybe you also can't go forward. Right. So it, it's not obvious to me that he hasn't just wedged himself even further into a a no-win position here for his regime that could lead to substantial problems down the line. I mean, and I know, I feel like I've seen more and more Russia analysts suggest that, well, the Putin government may not be 100% stable, especially if this war drags out. You know, the, the likelihood is not that Putin would be replaced by some, you know, great liberal democratic light. It would be that he would be replaced by someone even farther to the right, perhaps pushing an even more aggressive line on on Ukraine. And so I worry that you can end up in in that kind of situation as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with that. I think Putin, people never really had much of an expectation Putin himself was going to back down. And so I really think at this point, it really comes down to the idea of, is something going to break in Putin's system of control, um, whether it's he loses power or he's ousted or something else happens or not? And so at this point, it's kind of a waiting game to see if that happens as people ratchet up pressure on Russia as a whole. If that doesn't happen in a year or two years or however long people can stay in the conflict, then yeah, I think you do get to an outcome that looks more like what you're pitching, Alan, or what you're, you laid out, because it doesn't not clear there's an alternative. People don't, may not know what will eventually break Putin's hold on the country. Um, but until then, it's still an open possibility. And that's, I think, the hope that people are holding out on, and that he is, by entrenching himself in the way Quintus so ably described, trying to say, well, I'm not afraid of this, and your efforts at pressure are not going to make me change my mind. Well, speaking of authoritarian governments on the Eurasian continent, uh, there's also been some upheaval in Iran recently. So on September 13th, a, a young woman, I think 23 years old, named uh, Masa Amini was arrested by Iran's religious police for not uh, for showing her hair, not wearing her hijab in accordance with the law there. She later died. Uh, Iran's government has said that it was, you know, natural causes, heart failure. I think there's significant evidence to suggest that she was beaten while in custody, fell into a coma, and then died. And as a result, there have been some pretty explosive, I think it's fair to say, protests in Iran. Many, though not all of the protesters, are women um, who have been, you know, taking off their headscarves um, and in front of police in some cases. It's a pretty significant protest movement. Um, I think several people, in addition to Amini, have 
died, have been shot by police. Um, and the government seems to be cracking down pretty aggressively, uh, limiting access to the internet. The president, uh, Raisi, I think has been unwilling to speak to Western press about it. I know I saw uh, Christina Manpour had an interview scheduled with him when he was at the UN General Assembly, and he refused to show uh, because Manpour was not wearing the hijab. Again, this is is in New York, not in Iran. So I think the upheaval is pretty serious. um, And the question is, you know, where do we go from here? Um, Is this going to lead to any kind of change in Iran, in the regime? Um, I know the the U.S. government has been quite supportive of the protesters and has made some gestures toward uh, allowing them to continue to have access to the internet through a variety of means. So, Scott, I'm curious what you make of this. Is this, you know, a sign of a real change or would putting all our hopes on that look perhaps a little too much like uh, like the, the Green Movement several years ago, which eventually did fizzle out? It's impossible to tell, really, I think, at this point. I, I think most experts, uh, and I'm not a close enough Ron Watcher to qualify as one, but I think most experts who I follow on this believe that this is the most serious, popular uprising movement we've really seen in the last several decades, including the Green Movement. Much much broader, more aggressive, more directly confrontational, both in rhetoric and in act than even the Green Movement was, which, which you know, hit a certain level of fervor before it was effectively kind of suppressed by the regime. And it's interesting because it is really centered in a lot, a lot of ways around social issues, at least being the main motivator, uh, particularly women's issues. Um, that is in part because of the horrible story that triggered this, in which religious police appeared to have beaten to death, although they deny that they've done so, but beaten to death, essentially, this young woman um, for not adequately complying with, you know, directives about how she's supposed to dress. But it, it spreads broader than that about degree of political participation rights, social rights, and all these other factors that have been part of Iranian culture. People forget, like, Tehran and Iran used to have a very cosmopolitan kind of modernist culture really during the days of the Shah. And we've there are parts of that that have continued of having, you know, connections to aspects of global culture, very highly educated people who do study in Europe, study in other parts of the world, um, and bring back certain ideas and values and ways they like to live their lives. And in different periods, there's seen moments where you've seen that even break into the political sphere. So you think of Mohammed Khatami, uh, who was president of the Republic in the 1990s and the early 2000s, he's somebody who really ran on a liberalization kind of platform, both politically and social to some extent. Small, small scale. Um, we're not talking about an overhaul, but somebody who was elected with pretty broad numbers because he channeled some of these ideas. And since then, he and a lot of other people who have opened these ideas have really been repressed by this more hardline regime under the kind of general orchestration of Ayatollah Khamenei that has been pushing back and trying to consolidate control in these more conservative forces. And in some ways been aided, I think, in a lot of ways by the highly confrontational posture of uh, the outside world in in many respects. I don't think there's a one-to-one there. I think there are ways you can bring pressure that weaken the regime in a lot of regards, um, but there are also ways that kind of can strengthen it. Um, And it it, it is a careful double-edged sword for the West to be playing. In this case, the Biden administration is interestingly has said explicitly, we learned things from the Green Revolution there. The Biden, pardon me, the Obama administration was very intent on not showing any support, really even rhetorical support for fear of undermining the legitimacy of the Green Revolution. This was a real debate at the time that even I remember when I was a law student, I think at the time this all took place, 
they are not being that kind of uh, shy about it. They are openly saying we support these people. Again, they've installed different sanctions licenses to facilitate access to internet services and other things that otherwise might encounter sanctions obstacles, although I don't think they will. I think it's more just kind of openly signaling, please do this, companies continue to provide these services. But the, the, the real question then is, do they go further in supporting these things? And there, I suspect there is still going to be a lot of reservations about openly trying to foment um, revolution in Iran that could delegitimize it, could facilitate um, a lot more harsh repression and might undermine even lose support among certain elements of the protesters themselves. Right now, it seems very widespread and organic among big parts of the Iranian population. So I suspect there are still some internal concerns about that calibrated, just a little bit less conservative than the Obama administration was. I suspect they put real limits to the amount of outside input there. So in, all, in the end, it all breaks down to how strong is the Iranian regime? How much can it suppress this? And how much of a real threat is this internally? And those are all things really hard to judge for an outsider, probably even really hard to judge for an insider as well. Not unlike the situation in Russia, it's kind of a, a wait and see game to see how these different pressures play out. Yeah, Scott, I agree that I think much like Russia in that, it, you know, it's difficult for as an outsider to peer into an authoritarian regime and, and really understand what's happening, especially on the streets, you know, even despite social media images that are coming out. One thing I, I have been watching, um, you know, while Raisi has been fairly tight-lipped to foreign journalists, uh, with the exception of, I, I was reading a Robin Wright article in The New Yorker, um, where apparently he spoke with, to, to her and, and, a, and a small group of journalists. Uh, the foreign minister of Iran has been speaking uh, to the Western media. There was an interesting um, interview with Steve Inskeep uh, in NPR. And, you know, I think that gives some signals of, of what the what options the regime is considering. And it seems like, by many accounts, that reform is completely out of the question, that repression seems to be, you know, the main tool in the toolbox. It was interesting to hear, uh, you know, the blame game, essentially. Um, so the, the foreign minister points to outside agitators. Um, I think this is pretty a pretty predictable explanation. He even, I found it inter- interesting, appealed to uh, the Iranian people as an emotional people. You know, he said, you know, Iranians are, are, are emotional. Um, they, were, they were rightfully upset at this tragic death. They're sentimental. They protested peacefully, and that, but then the real violence was was instigated by by the outside, and I think that's that's pretty a pretty typical line that that we we should expect to keep hearing. You know, at least he didn't say that women were emotional. So I guess there's that. Exactly. He was he was speaking broadly, <laughs> but I think um, you know the, another thing I've been watching um, is the portrayal of the protests in the Western media. One particular article I think that has been making its rounds on. Certain corners of Twitter is um, again a New Yorker article from Dexter Filkins, which sort of seemed to portray the protests as led by, almost led single-handedly by a dissident in exile in New York, actually uh, an Iranian dissident. There was actually some some false reporting uh, on on the New Yorker's part that she was unpaid, and uh, when in fact she was, uh, you know, contracted by the Voice of America and and had and had certain contracts with the U.S. government. This actually angered um, many Iranian American and Iranian um, uh, journalists and, and academics. And um, there's an interesting open letter going around that is asking the New Yorker to correct the record and really to reframe the narrative of this women's movement going back even to the to the early days of the 20th century rather than just you know sort of the the social media campaign of, of one foreign dis- dissident so so that's been an interesting thing to watch and play out in the western media as well i mean that's that strikes me as particularly interesting in light of how the biden administration has been 
less worried about making it seem like the protests were, you know, somehow in coordination with the United States or, or the West that, you know, maybe those those concerns creep in <laughs> around the edges uh, in in one way or another. I mean, one one thing that I also wanted to make sure that we got to is that there's been some reporting that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei has been sick. He, he canceled all his public appearances, I think, a week or so ago. He is 83. So I, I did want to ask you, Scott, you know, does the fact of his sort of absence or illness or perhaps even death, how does that play into this? Is it totally separate and it just is sort of an additional element of chaos if he does continue to be absent or dies? Or do you need to sort of read these two things on top of one another? You know, I, I would encourage people to look to people who are closer around lookers to double check me on this. But this is my understanding uh, going into this is that how many has been a figure who is suspected? I don't think you really 100 percent know behind the scenes, but is have expected or suspected of playing a pretty central role in backing this conservative shift after Hatami. Right. Um, so like we had a moment where they looked like there was a liberalization window happening in Iran, moment of engagement. Uh, and that shifted to the Ahmadinejad government, um, but also shifted to the period in which uh, kind of the United States and Iran began escalating their very difficult relationship, although certainly they had plenty of difficult chapters before that. But the most latest iteration kind of began, began to escalate most dramatically in that period in the mid to late 2000s. And that Khamenei has been a booster of that, uh, you know, supporting the IRGC and playing more sort of role in politics, more sort of role in foreign policy and security policy in various regards. So a shift away from him could mean a difference if it's to shift to somebody who doesn't feel that way um, uh, or support the same policies. But my general sense is that, you know, Khamenei is not a man alone. He is, in fact, part of a much broader movement. And there's at times been various questions about, well, like how much of this is, you know, the movements of just this one man versus a coterie of people around him versus a much broader social movement that incorporates some of which might be forcing his hand more than being driven by him. And I'm not sure that we have 100 percent clarity on that. I doubt we do. So it's hard to know exactly what impact this will have, other than the fact that it clearly is kind of destabilizing. Iran is a country with lots and lots of pockets of influence and authority and power. So you want to have a big power figure kind of fall out of that. There's a lot of jostling and moving for kind of influence. Um, that said, he's not directly in control, by my understanding, of many state apparatuses or the, the groups that would be kind of confronting this sort of crisis. So I kind of suspect it would mostly just give Raisi kind of a freer hand in the short term and then cause more medium to long term instability as they figure out the kind of political religious superstructure that oversees the whole Iranian government and tries to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, that that, that seems intuitive, right? You know, I'm, I'm no, I am. Uh, I am definitely not an Iran expert by, by any means, but just sort of abstracting from the specific personalities at issue, right? You know, if, if you have this long-lived autocrat who has provided some measure of stability, um, and this person exits the scene for whatever reason, then I do think that the obvious short-term imperative for whoever is, you know, in power at the time, is to project as much stability as possible, and and in Iran. The easiest way to project stability, at least for people of a very conservative bent, and that is who happens to be in office right now, is to clamp down as much as possible, right? But you have a situation where Raisi is both trying to confront what to do in the event of Khamenei's death, but also dealing with this increasing unrest. The most um, natural thing to do might be to crack down on that as much as possible to project that he can be the leader to get Iran through this transition, at least with respect to the elites that he has to negotiate with to stay in power. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I just wanted to amend, you know, one thing I said earlier in that, you know, repression seems like maybe the only option. I have seen a few more moderate scenarios bandied about from Iran experts that Another face-saving option could be to reform a bit more of the enforcement structure rather than the underlying legal structure, um, so maybe soften uh, the teeth of the morality police. But it does seem likely that the hijab law or the scarf law in general will remain untouched. So there, there's a, a fun additional final twist to all of this, which is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who we mentioned before, was a, a previous uh, hardline Iranian president, has come out in favor of getting rid of the hijab law. So that is a fun twist that I certainly did not see coming. I don't I don't know if if anyone else did, Scott, if this has been long in the making, but that just injects like an additional weird element of chaos into the whole thing. I will say he is somebody who has had a personal vendetta against unnecessary attire because he is the person who killed the necktie among world leaders. He was the first person to, as I call it, quote unquote, rock the Ahmadinejad by walking around to high level meetings without a necktie on. And now Barack Obama started doing it. Everybody's doing it's it. Casual chic, new style. you know? Casual chic, exactly. But uh, it is a, uh, it's a, maybe a personal issue for him. So we'll have to see. Maybe that's driving his uh, particular position on this issue. We'll, we'll, we'll see if it comes out uh, where he comes out on it. Well, folks, from a riot on the streets of Tehran to a laugh riot in the Southern District of Florida, let us know during once again to our favorite recurring segment here on Rational Security, the Mar-a-Lago Chronicles, um, because we got a real barnstormer of an opinion from the 11th Circuit late last week, finally slapping down part of, not the entirety, but that's the only part challenged by the Justice Department, the order issued by Judge Eileen Cannon who, of course, took all the records that the Justice Department seized from the Mar-a-Lago estate, including approximately 100 classified records, and has been insisting that they be reviewed by a special master before the government can do anything with them, including begin criminal investigations or prosecutions. Now, in regards to at least those 100 classified records, the Justice Department successfully challenged that order. It has been reversed or stayed, I should say, uh, pending a further appeal um, by the 11th Circuit, meaning that they are free to go forward with the investigation regarding those 100 documents. Meanwhile, the special master, Richard Deary in Brooklyn, is proceeding apace pursuant to directions received from Judge Cannon in reviewing the documents, but has started out with several pointed questions to former President Trump and his legal counsel, including what records are you alleging the Justice Department planted and 
what is your basis for asserting any of these things were declassified at any point previously? Two questions that former President Trump has certainly alluded to answer, having answers to in public remarks, but has not filed anything on in court of any particular substance. In other words, it seems like these proceedings may be turning against the former president, at least for the moment. Quinta, you wrote a very useful piece last week with a couple of our colleagues, Natalie and Ben, kind of laying out how the 11th Circuit opinion put Judge Cannon's initial order kind of in its proper place, uh, which is out of existence, uh, at least in regards to those 100 classified documents. Where do you all think, or where, where did you reach the conclusion about what this might mean for the investigation and what it means in terms of the next step of these proceedings in this case? Yeah, you could say that uh, the 11th Circuit put her opinion out of its misery, perhaps. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think the the 11th Circuit ruling is pretty much as brutal a judicial smackdown from an appellate court as you can possibly hope to see, particularly because it, I think it, it took the court, I believe, around only 24 hours, possibly less than 24 hours since the Justice Department filed its its last brief or Trump filed his last brief to actually say, no, this this is not going to fly. So now we end up in this situation where the Justice Department is allowed to go forward with a portion of its investigation that involves those pesky, pesky classified documents, both in the criminal and the counterintelligence portion of the investigation. We do still have, as you mentioned, uh, Judge Raymond Deary, the special master looking over things in New York. And then we are awaiting a full appeal from the Justice Department, which I believe they have noticed but have not yet actually filed um, in the 11th Circuit of all of Cannon's order because uh, things are still on hold for all of the non-class or not technically non-classified documents, the documents that are not marked with classification markings to be very specific. I will say I do think that, you know, it does not surprise me that this is where we ended up. I think that Trump was always playing for time because at the end of the day, the law just looks extremely bad. And frankly, I think it's it's getting worse and worse for him as more information comes out. So I think he was always just trying to give himself more time to to spin, to do I don't know what. Perhaps there is, you know, there was some idea among at least some of his legal team that with that extra time, they would be able to, you know, really figure out a winning argument. I think there was some indication to that effect in uh, reporting from Axios in the New York Times that they'd requested Judge Deary as the special master because Deary had previously for quite a long time served on the FISA court. Uh, when the Carter Page FISA was at issue, the Page FISA, of course, there are some irregularities there, which the DOJ Inspector General has already chewed the FBI out for. Uh, Trump world has sort of spun this up into a scandal of significant surpassing Watergate. And according to Axios, had convinced themselves that like somehow that would mean that Deary would be on their side, which suggests to me that perhaps they really were kind of high on their own supply and had convinced themselves that somehow getting a special master involved would, you know, fix this for them. But I, I find that uh, extremely doubtful, especially because Deary, for reasons that we can talk about, really seems like he's very much uh, not picking up what they're putting down. Yeah, so I, I, I just want to follow up on, uh, on on two things Quinta said. But first, just to start with this last point about <laughs> Deary. So a couple of weeks ago, we did a Twitter Spaces uh, about the the opinion, uh, Judge Cannon's opinion. And there was a question from the audience about how exactly, like, what is Judge Deary supposed to 
do? Like, how, how is he supposed to decide whether things are classified? And I don't know. I was kind of being snarky. I hadn't had enough coffee that morning or something. And I think I said something like, well, he could just, I don't know, look at the cover sheets. Because <laughs> like, how else do you figure out if it's classified except the color of the cover sheet? And I didn't really think about that comment until I then read, I think a few days ago or last week, um, a transcript of the hearing that Deary held <laughs> in which he literally basically said, well, I don't know. It has classified cover sheets. So unless you tell me something else, I think it's classified. And I think this just underscores, um, not that I'm good at predicting things, but just this, this, everything about this is insane. Like this is not complicated. You don't need a special master. This is all the weirdest sort of kabuki theater. And Deary's doing the exact right job, which is like, okay, you want a special master. So I'm going to look out and uh, you're, the special master confirms that the sky is blue. Cool. Moving on. Um, so uh, I, I think that's just it's just worth noting that at the end of the day, um, it's 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 a little bit like jogging on a treadmill. You know, we're we're we're, we're sweating a lot to just end up in the same place, um, which is one of the many reasons I don't like to jog on treadmills or outdoors for that matter. But that's a different conversation. The other thing I wanted to say was just to underscore Quinta's point of just how unpleasant the Eleventh Circuit opinion is to read if you are Judge Cannon. And this takes a certain amount of reading between the lines and acculturation into uh, the, the august majesty of circuit courts. Don't be kind of fooled by the language of the opinion. Like this is basically telling Judge Cannon, what are you doing? You are embarrassing us. Like you are a like you silly, silly person. And I think this is relevant, again, because one of the important ways that we discipline judges is not just by overturning their opinions on appeal, which we do, of course, and is happening in this case, but through the professional informal sanction of being really, really embarrassed when they get it really wrong. And it's just going to be very, very hard for Judge Cannon to live this down. I mean, uh, you know, in a recent recording, Ben Ben pointed out that this this will be part of Judge Cannon's obituary, right? You know, she went, whatever else she does, uh, you know, she was the judge that issued this nonsense ruling in this Trump case. And so, uh, I think it's just notable that the 11th Circuit could have been really nice to her and could have said, oh, this is a hard case. And, you know, it's hard. And instead said, we have no idea what's going on. This is silly. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth adding that Canon immediately after or uh, I think guess 12 or so hours after that 11th Circuit ruling further and unnecessarily complicated things for everybody by issuing a order that implemented aspects of the 11th Circuit's stay which is not something that you have to do because if it if it stayed is just stayed uh thereby creating addition lots of additional complications like is an appeal now moot who knows why did she do that who knows i feel like my conclusion here is that she's just fundamentally not very good at being a judge and that she's flailing right she's just like it's it's not just that you don't have to do anything once it's been stayed like you might not be able to like the whole point of an appeal is that it divests the district court of jurisdiction now this gets all very technical but none of this is necessary and it just feels like she's flailing and you know right like the when you're when the first thing to do when you've dug yourself into a hole is to put the shovel down she really needs to do that yeah you know i, I will say you know, a small, maybe encouraging note from that little kerfluffle that came after that is that she's very clearly intent on implementing the 11th Circuit's opinion. She is not interested in reaching any substantive judgments on this opinion. That's what she's been trying to avoid so far this entire time. 
by kicking the bucket to a special master and refusing to actually rule out any of the documents in the way the Justice Department suggested. She just doesn't seem to actually want to really reach a meaningful decision on a lot of this stuff, uh, including, re you know, rejecting claims that the former president has brought forward. And so it's just setting it up for either a special master to decide or the 11th Circuit to decide. But both of those people now seemed inclined to take decisions much more along the lines that most legal experts uh, expected. I do think it's kind of interesting to think about where this goes next. Uh, it's interesting that we haven't seen now, it's we're almost not quite a week ago, but like five or six days ago, any signs of a Supreme Court appeal. Uh, this would have to be appealed to the Supreme Court if former President Trump wants to pursue it any further. There's no en banc option in the 11th Circuit, which I was surprised to learn, but is not is the case here under their rules. So that is itself, you would ex kind of expect, or I would expect Trump's legal team to move very quickly on a appeal to the Supreme Court for the simple reason that they got knocked in the district court by the Justice Department saying, you took too long to file this action for the special master in the first place. And throughout this time, you let these documents hang out there. So there's obviously not a huge risk uh, of that they are going to you know, prejudice your client in any particular way. And so you lose that argument the longer you wait to file an appeal. It takes time to write these things a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not like they didn't see this possibility coming. And certainly they could they could notice it or state an intent to file something and say, we're working on it. But they don't, they're not inclined to do that so far. And I'm curious as to why that is. I, I kind of suspect it's because they don't think the odds are very good. Other issues might come in on further appeal. And this way they can kind of just say, okay, well, we're still working through the special master process for a lot of these documents. That's still in place. And as far as I can tell, the Justice Department intends to let the special master process continue. It still is pursuing an appeal, but the schedule for the appeal, and they haven't seen to seek to expedite it, is longer than the special master process. So I think the special master process for the non-classified documents is going to go forward. And so they'll get the sort through and the Justice Department will be, able, will be able to say, this was an error, should never have been issued in the first place. Maybe we'll even try and appeal that. But at that point, I think it would be mooted out, I suspect, although who knows what the outstanding issues are. Um, but they're willing to go forward so they can say, again, we gave former President Trump every benefit of a doubt. We put our foot down on classified information, like that's the important stuff. But now no one can argue that we improperly held any of his personal information. The special master he asked for, the, over our objections, he got it. They've reviewed it and he said it's kosher and okay. So let's proceed here with the actual investigation. And it's not a bad place to come out for the Justice Department, even if it takes a little longer than uh, they may have originally intended. So Scott, I, I know that you have been, I think, more willing to think of the special master as like a legitimate part of this process and maybe even an improvement. But I, I have to say, I have to say, I just, I feel dumber after this whole legal saga. Like there was this opinion and then we had to do like 17 lawfare lives and, and, and posts and editing. And then it goes to the 11th circuit and 11th circuit goes, ah, this is ridiculous. And then it goes back and the special master goes, yeah, they're classified cover sheets, not that complicated. It's just, I, I just feel dumber after all of this has been said and done. Yeah, I think to add on to that, Scott and Alan, you've both made wonderful points, but I think the most convincing uh, one I've heard so far is from Quinta, which I'll call Quinta's razor, which is that Judge Cannon is just um, just not a very good judge. This this adds to Trump's <laughs> razor, which I don't think I came up with. I can't remember who came up with it, but it's that uh, the dumbest possible explanation is usually the most likely. <laughs> It's, it's actually Trump's razor is actually a corollary of Hanlon's razor, which is uh, which is if 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 you're choosing between incompetence and malevolence as an option, just go with incompetence. It's usually right as an explanation. It's usually the explanation. 
Well, I will say I'm certainly not defending the legitimacy of this decision, which was wrong pretty much from the outset and at every stage along the way. Um, but I do think there are the outcome, like I said, for Justice Department isn't that bad. And there are reasons why it's kind of compromising on big parts of it now, not on principle. It's not saying this should be repeated, but in this particular case, it seems OK to let things kind of lie where they've fallen at this point. I do think this might be the moment where we will hear something for the special master decision. And then after that, like this case, this issue, we keep thinking is going to be quiet. This whole special master thing was a bit of a surprise. We said that on numerous Twitter spaces and I wrote it into several pieces. I still stand by it. But at some point, when the special master process dies down, there's going to be a few months where the Justice Department does its work and does it quietly and behind closed doors as it should be. Um, we may get some media reports, especially there's grand jury hearings, something like that. But at some point, it's going to quiet down. And I think that moment is actually finally coming now. And then it'll be for the Justice Department to decide, well, what do we do next? And that could be explosive. Um, so at that point, that's really the real question is where do they take this? Uh, but we won't know for quite a while after the special master process wraps up. Um, and like I said, it's not clear to me there's going to be any more appeals. So I think that's kind of the end of the game, I think. Well, that brings us to the end of another week's episode here on Rational Security. But this would not be Rational Security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about until we are back in your podcaster next week. Alan, what do you have for us this week by way of object lesson? So so my object lesson is a uh, feature uh, in a recent issue of New York Magazine uh, by Andrew Rice and Olivia Nuzzi. Uh, Nuzzi, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop. It is the, the long-awaited mainstream media treatment of Hunter Biden's laptop, which for those who have not followed this uh, just, just depressing story on all counts, you know, came to light because of this Mac repair shop a few days before the 2020 election, had all this really embarrassing and potentially compromising information, was, I think we can say, censored. Uh, by the large technology companies who were worried that this might be Russian disinformation. Turns out it wasn't actually Russian disinformation. Um, it does seem to be that this laptop, at least large parts of it, were authentic. This has then led to a bunch of just crazy conspiracy theorizing on the right. No one comes out looking good here. But it's a really interesting treatment of the story. Uh, I listened to it on Autumn. It makes for excellent uh, long-form listening. And the thing I like about it is, first, I think it is a... You know, it is a sensitive portrayal of of this issue, which really is sordid and really unfortunate for Hunter Biden, who, while uh, clearly who has made some really terrible life decisions, is also in his own right a tragic figure who has struggled quite quite a bit with mental health issues and addiction. You know, um, all all of that all of that stuff. So I, I like it for that reason. The other reason I like it is because I mean, look, the mainstream media does have to address this issue at some point. And, you know, there is a potential and there's, I think, an ongoing DOJ investigation into Hunter Biden. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's something that the center and the left have not honestly treated with as much importance as I, I think it does deserve. I think in part because they don't want to play into the nut job conspiracy theorizing of much of the right, which is dealing with the story in exceptionally bad faith. But the fact that the other side is dealing with it in bad faith doesn't mean that, you know, your side can ignore the story. So. Um, I, I thought it was a, a nicely well done treatment, but I, I know that Quinta also has some some thoughts. On yeah, I will say I've been waiting for the sort of definitive mainstream take, as you put it as well, precisely because the story touches on so many naughty different issues. I will say I actually felt that the framing was seriously flawed and and did a great disservice to people who are suffering from addiction. 
Um, we can we can discuss this later, but I do think that it, it speaks to you know just how difficult it is to write about this kind of thing sensitively and with care, particularly when it's at the dead center of a political maelstrom. Quinda, what do you have for us this week? In an attempt to be less controversial, um, I, I am going to use as my object lesson the great British writer Hilary Mantel, who died this past week at 70, which is just an absolutely unbelievable loss. Uh, so Mantel, I imagine most of our listeners have probably read her Thomas Cromwell series, which starts with the brilliant novel Wolf Hall and the, the final book, which came out, I think, a couple of years ago. Just really unbelievable writing. It's sort of a great work of historical rethinking of a much maligned figure, but just as a work of writing is absolutely incredible. I'd also encourage anyone who liked that to read her book on the French Revolution, which is called A Place of Greater Safety. Uh, she has another wonderful novel called Beyond Black, a book of short stories called The Assassination of Margaret Thatcher, and also a memoir, which I highly recommend, called Giving Up the Ghost. So I was deeply, deeply sad to learn of her passing just because, you know, she was has always been brilliant and I have long been a fan, but was clearly someone who had just sort of finished a real literary masterwork with the Cromwell series. And I was excited to see what she did next. So I will recommend uh, basically everything that she has ever written. And I, I may go back and reread it all in her memory. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am continuing my anti-intellectual trend. I do read books occasionally for the record, I swear, but I don't like to talk to them on this podcast. Instead, I'm going to talk about TV some more. Because for folks who may recall, I celebrated for an object lesson, I think early in our run, the fact that we are entering the renaissance of fantasy television. If you were a little boy who liked Swords and Dragons, this is the moment to be alive. And Excuse you, as a little girl who enjoyed Swords and Dragons, come on, Scott. Or a little come girl on. who enjoyed Swords and Dragons. Totally fair. Totally fair. Totally fair. Uh, phenomenal Scott, Scott in, in Scott's defense, he he was. I was the little boy, is what I was referring to. Teeny myself. weeny little boy. In case it's not clear, I was talking about me. I literally had a sword on my wall until my wife said, to take it down because we had a toddler. So, for that reason. You can't see it, but it's actually in the background of his, of his screen right now. <laughs> it's now in my office. Exactly. It's a home defense thing, guys. <laughs> Second Amendment. He, he waves it menacingly during he waves it menacingly during editorial meetings to get his way. <laughs> it's how I cut words. Um, the key point being that I have finally gotten to dig into the season because unfortunately the renaissance of fantasy television overlaps with the renaissance of fantasy football in terms of its football season. So it really eats into my very limited TV watching time. But I finally dug into the first of these series. And I have to say it's great. And it's gotten kind of critically maligned slash like overlooked compared to its competitor. And I gotta say, I think it's phenomenal. That's rings of power, guys. I think it's a phenomenal tribute to old Tolkien's whole work. It flushes it out, gives it lots of visual depth, way more interesting world building than Peter Jackson did in his movies and whoever made, I guess it was Peter Jackson again, the Hobbit movies. So I think it's phenomenal. I don't know why people are ragging on it. I think it's just, I'm loving every minute of it, man. It is edge of my seat excitement, by which I mean slow plotting hours of world building. And that's what I want out of a fantasy series. So screw you guys who don't like Rings of Power. I think it's great. Uh, everyone should check it out if you've been deterred from it by all this talk of, uh, you know, whatever the new Game of Thrones series is, which I will watch one day, but not yet. I would encourage you to check out Rings of Power. It's great. And it's really nice to not have it be just so brutal for the sake of being brutal, which Game of Thrones has a problem with. I have trouble watching television that does that, including Game of Thrones, which I quite liked the first few seasons of before it got real bad. And despite that, but it's nice to not worry about that. There's plenty of violence and gore and dark things going on in Rings of Power, but nothing just for the sake of being brutal on screen. And I really like that. And I just think it's fantastic. So encourage folks to check it out. 
Big plus one, big plus one on Rings of Power for many of the reasons Scott said. Um, I don't understand the gore for gore sake of Game of Thrones. And honestly, it's I kind of gave up halfway through the original series for, for that reason. Rings of Power is excellent. I mean, look, my hot take is that Galadriel kind of sucks. Tweet at me. I really, she really, I mean, I'm really hoping we get like a, a fun. I, th- just, I just think like that's a little the more plot. A, I think that's the whole first season is Galadriel like caused all this. She's totally. just got to loosen Spoilers, up a guys. little bit. Also, people who are whining about like the fact that like there are Cuban elves and black hobbits, like this is the worst. Just like it brings out the worst. It just brings out the worst in people and get over it. It's all delightful and it's just it's 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 fabulous. I agree. Totally. Could not agree more. Durin's wife is the best. End of story. Absolutely. Tyler, what do you have to close us out with? Uh, well, since I already mentioned Ahmadinejad's Twitter account, uh, instead I'll talk about Ahmadinejad's Instagram account. No, I'm, no, I'm only joking. It's all just pictures of him wearing sport coats and jackets with no tie. It's all just a fashion with hashtag menswear everywhere. It's a very weird choice for Ahmadinejad, but it's really take it off. Putthison.com is all over it. They it's love a no-brainer it. follow. Trust me. I uh, last weekend took myself on a on a solo date to Film Forum where I saw a documentary called Riotsville, USA. Uh, highly recommend. It's it's um, a documentary by Sierra Pettengill with narration written by Toby Hazlitt. Essentially, it's it's based around this archival footage uh, from the late '60s when the army built mock U.S. towns on on army bases and invited uh, police leadership throughout the country uh, to sort of game out crowd control measures and it has this very eerie very strange quality to it uh to see these like uh, someone called it another reviewer called it uh state security slapstick uh so it has this sort of like darkly humorous quality and and i i found uh i don't know if anyone has pointed this out on twitter yet but i did find strange parallels to nathan fielder's the rehearsal in a, in a dark way i almost expected him to be just off screen with his his laptop but um I'll leave it there. It's 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 a great watch um, and really speaks to the moment, I have to say. Uh, the days of solo dates to film forum, how I miss them. Uh, I live vicariously through you, Tyler. That sounds lovely. Scott, I, I can I can bend the rule. I have room for one more if you want to come on my next uh, film forum date. Next time I'm in town, I'm doing it. Let's do it. I'm on board. Just just take Reese. I, 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 you know, he's a man of culture. I don't think he would get through a movie. I'm not counting on that one. <laughs> I can't get him through an episode of Daniel Tiger. Yeah, no way. No way. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Tyler McBrien, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.